0: We are, um, we're only four weeks away from Easter, uh, which as a pastor is you know the biggest Sunday of the year. I mean, obviously every Sunday is important, but Easter weekend, Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday is, is just the best. Uh, Amy Sawyer, our Creative Arts Fellow, is heading up our Good Friday service along with our creative team, taking us through an experience of the Stations of the Cross. That's at 7 p.m. here on... Friday, April 19th. And then on Easter Sunday, our choir will be helping to lead us in worship, and we'll have two services at 9 a.m. and 10.30 a.m., and we hope you'll join us. If you're in town, bring a friend, bring family, bring roommates. Um, You are welcome to bring all of those folks to any Sunday, uh, but I know there just might be a few more folks in town on Easter weekend. Now, for the last year or so, we've been in the Gospel of John, and we're close to the end. We're only a couple months away. And today we're looking at one of my favorite passages. This passage uh, that we heard Melissa read was preached one Sunday morning in London almost 20 years ago in an underground comedy club where my church met when I was in college. And it was what I needed to hear that day, for that season in my life. Now, I don't remember what the date was or the month or year, I don't remember who was preaching. But what I do remember is that it was as if God was speaking to me through the preacher. I remember the feeling of being seen, being heard, being known, and being loved. And I pray that for you today. Whoever you are, however you identify, wherever you may be on the journey of faith, whatever season of life you find yourself in, whatever the burdens and fears and hopes and dreams you are carrying right now, and however loosely or tightly you are holding on to them, that you might feel seen and heard and known and loved by the God of the universe. Now, as a reminder of the setting of this passage, this is the last week of Jesus' life. This is his last night with his disciples. We've heard in previous weeks about how Jesus washed his disciples' feet, Modeling for them the kind of humble servant leadership that they were and we are to emulate. How he broke bread with them. How Judas, one of his followers, left to betray Jesus to the religious leaders who were out to get him. And then last week, Matthew reminded us of Jesus' reassurance to his disciples. His promise of a dwelling place with him and his presence with them. And so, in this passage here, Jesus is continuing what's called the farewell discourse. It's his his final instructions to his disciples before his death and resurrection. He was preparing his disciples right before he was about to be taken. And so this is sort of an in-house conversation. Jesus isn't speaking in parables or stories. He's he's being straight up. And so what follows, both the the responsibility and the reassurance, which we'll hear about, is for followers of Jesus only, but we all get to listen in. We all get to hear it. Before I I step into the passage, though, I want to start with an opening question. I want you to turn to your neighbor for a moment, and discuss this: What is one thing you can't do without? What is one thing you can't do without? Turn to your neighbor for just a couple moments. Go. All right. what What are some of the What are some of the responses? Just shout them out. Air. Air. <laughs> Literally oxygen. That, that that is true. What is what, what is what other other responses? Coffee. Coffee. How many people would say coffee? Amen. <laughs> Relationship. Others? Love. Love. Glasses. 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 yep. The ability, to, yep. Internet. The internet. That is the first thing I do when I move to a new spot, is get the, get the Wi-Fi set up. Wallet. Wallet. Um, the follow-up question is, is a, is a Marie Kondo-like, does it give you joy? Does it spark joy? I mean hopefully oxygen sparks joy. <laughs> because because joy is where we land. That's what Jesus says. Joy is where we land. He says in, 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 in John fifteen eleven, I have said these things so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. Joy is where we land. Author and philosopher Dallas Willard says that joy is not a passing sensation of pleasure, but a pervasive and constant sense of well-being that is infused with hope because of the goodness of God. A pervasive and constant sense of well-being that is infused with hope because of the goodness of God. I don't know about you, but that sounds real good to me right now. With all that's, that's going on in the world, uh, floods in the Midwest, a devastating cyclone in Mozambique, um, the, the, the mosque shootings in New Zealand, with all that's going on in friends' lives, with illness and trauma and disappointment and relational conflict, with all of the hard conversations and the difficult decisions and the uncertainty about the future and maybe even the present, a pervasive and constant sense of well-being. Sounds like a fantastic reality right now. And according to Jesus, it's available to us. So how do we get there? From John 15, I've gleaned three actions, three responses, three steps to joy, and they are abide, obey, and persist. Abide, obey, and persist. First, abide. Jesus begins chapter 15 by saying, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine grower. In the Old Testament, God was the vine grower, as he is here. But it was the nation of Israel, it was the people of Israel who were commonly referred to as the vine, or the vineyard. For some of the Jews, it was their identity as Jews, as the chosen people of God, wherein their salvation rested. But Jesus says to his disciples, I am the one you should believe in. I am the one you should trust. That's why he says he's the true vine. This is not just a random analogy about dependence on God. Jesus is getting straight to the heart of the matter, to the core facet of their identity, using an image they would have been very familiar with. He goes on, verse 2, He, God, removes every branch in me that bears no fruit. Every branch that bears fruit, He prunes to make it bear more fruit. Now, I want us to notice something. There are two outcomes, right? Branches can bear fruit, or they can bear no fruit. And I I think bearing bad fruit would be included in the latter category rather than the former. And there are two actions that God takes. If a branch bears no fruit, he will remove it. And if it does bear fruit, he will what? Leave it alone? No. He will prune it. The word here, it, it literally translates as cleanse. Now, pruning doesn't sound very comfortable, does it? doesn't sound like something we would willingly submit ourselves to. Pruning takes place, at least in modern gardening, by way of pruning shears with a wicked sharp blade. These probably need sharpening, and they're a little rusty, but they do the job. The branches that are dead and fruitless are snipped off, and the branches that are growing are pruned, they're cut back, so that they might grow in a healthier way, so that the nutrients are directed in the right way and not wasted. That's our principle of gardening and of spirituality. For things to grow healthily, they have to be tended and sometimes cut back. Sometimes God has to remove things from your life so that you might become a healthier person so that your soul might be healthier. Sometimes God has to cut back elements in your life that you enjoy, maybe too much. Sometimes it can feel like you're in a wilderness season, like like what David Bailey described a few weeks ago, and it just feels like God is far off and life is difficult or disappointing, but sometimes it's God's way of weaning you off of childish things so that you can step into more maturity. Now all you know is that it doesn't feel great. All you can see is the thing being cut back or the thing being taken away. But God, our God, who is love, is growing you in love. About a year ago, I was uh, trying to make my way back to a better level of fitness than I had been in. Honestly, trying to regain the feeling of health I had in my 20s. And so I joined a gym. And as part of that, I got three sessions with a personal trainer. At the first session, I told my trainer that I wasn't as fit as I used to be, you know, that I wanted to get back in my muscle tone and my stamina and my flexibility. And he was like, OK, we can, we can start working on that. Now, the thing is, it wasn't all that intense of a workout. Uh, but, and I'm being real vulnerable here, about two-thirds of the way through, I was feeling like passing out and throwing up at the same time. <laughs> it was fantastic. So after I requested a quick breather, I I asked my trainer, I said, you know, I asked him what was going on. You know, was it, I I didn't have enough water, I didn't get enough rest or sleep. I was trying to figure out what I could do to not feel this way. And my trainer said, oh, that's just your body getting rid of all the crap that's accumulated from not being healthy. So I said, so there's no way to uh, avoid this feeling except getting fit again. He said that was right. In other words, the only way to physical health was through this pruning, cleansing process. There was no option other than the one I've fallen back on by default, which is to not go through the process and resign myself to a lower level of fitness, at least until I decide to take care of my body again which I'm sort of shaming myself into with this public admission. (laughs) I wonder how many of us have resigned ourselves to a lower level of joy, or love, or life, because we don't want to go through what it takes to experience the fullness of joy, or love, or life because you don't want to be pruned or cleansed. Maybe you are in a season that feels hard or difficult right now where some things you thought you could count on didn't work out, or where some people you thought were trustworthy didn't turn out not to be, or where some habits you you used to rely on to get you through have become or been revealed to be toxic or useless. Perhaps, now this may not be the case, but perhaps, perhaps it is God at work in your life. What I do know is that God is always at work in our lives. Always at work to bring life. And so even if the season you are in is one in which you are not being pruned per se, but rather you are being eaten up by mold or bugs or animals, what I do know, what I can guarantee you, is that God is at work for your good. That much he has already promised. In all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Romans eight twenty eight. After laying out the two futures for the branches, Jesus says this in verses, verse 4 and onwards. Abide in me as I abide in you. Just as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. God is the vine grower. Jesus is the vine. We are the branches. We cannot bear fruit unless we, the branches, are joined to Jesus, the vine. Branches that are broken off from the vine are incapable of bearing fruit. Why? Quite simply because they have lost their connection to their source of life. Disciples of Jesus who are disconnected from Jesus will have a hard time bearing fruit and living fruitful lives. Why? For the very same reason they have lost their connection with the source of their life. That's why Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. Abide in Jesus for your life. Some translations say, remain in him. In the message paraphrase, Jesus says, live in me. Make your home in me as I do in you. Stay joined to Jesus and bear fruit. Stay connected to Jesus and live. It's it's not an ultimatum, okay? It's not a do this or else. It's it's talking about, you know, Jesus talking about the branches being thrown into the fire isn't a description of hell, it's a description of reality. We become all kinds of useless when we are disconnected from Christ. a refrigerator that isn't plugged into the outlet isn't going to work very well, or at all. Or to fulfill its purpose, because it needs to be connected to the source of its power. A mobile device that can't connect to a signal isn't going to fulfill its purpose, because it needs to be connected to the source of its connection. And we who were made in the image of God, who is love, we who were made to love, if we're not connected to Jesus, the source of life and love, we aren't going to fulfill our purpose. We aren't going to know joy if we aren't connected to the source of joy, the source of life and love and, and peace and hope. Author C.S. Lewis put it this way. He said, God made us. And then he has an analogy about how cars were made to run on petrol only. So that was pre-electric vehicle. (laughs) God designed the human machine to run on himself. He himself is the fuel our spirits were designed to burn or the food our spirits were designed to feed on. There is no other that is why it is just no good asking God to make us happy in our own way apart from, uh, without bothering with religion. God cannot give us a happiness and peace apart from himself because it is not there. So maybe abiding in Christ actually begins with asking who or what other than Jesus are you relying on to give you life or to get you through life? Almost every time that I've checked myself, I've realized that it's not this or that external situation that's causing me anxiety or worry or anger or irritation, but it's this unresolved internal situation. This disconnection from Jesus. Now, there are absolutely external situations that are bad for us, toxic relationships at home or at work, unhealthy power dynamics, abuse, and so on. But our tendency, our tendency, I think, is to blame what's outside of us rather than looking at whether we are connected to the source of life Christ himself. Jesus adds in verse 9 abide in my love. Now what difference would it make to how we live, to what we said, to what we did if we knew at our core that we were loved, that we are enough. So much of life with Jesus is about awareness. It's about awareness of the fact that God is with us every moment of every day. That God is nearer to us than the air we are breathing right now. That Christ is in every person we encounter. That we have a conversation with or an interaction with. That Jesus loves you and Jesus loves them. One of the things that's become clearer to me over this past month, particularly through the the lens of an exhausted new parent, is how... Uh, especially when we're at the end of our rope, it can be so easy to choose distraction or despair rather than devotion. Distraction or despair over devotion. You may be familiar with the acronym HALTS, hungry, angry, lonely, tired, stressed. Those times when we're particularly prone. It can be so easy to numb or to give up rather than to press into God. It can be so easy to do all the things that offer a pseudo-life rather than to reconnect to the source of life. To be joined once again to the vine, to abide in Jesus, and to rest in His love. But if we do stay connected to Jesus, if we do live in Christ, and Christ's words live in us, Jesus tells us, ask for whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Whatever you wish, God will do. What an amazing promise. The thing is, the fulfillment of our wishes is contingent on our relational closeness to God. And our relational closeness to God means that our desires and subsequently our wishes will begin to look more like God's. Unselfish. Large-hearted. Caring for others. Centering the vulnerable. If we're trying to use God to get what we want, we aren't really connected to the vine. We're just trying to steal some of his nutrition. That's not abiding. So we get to joy by abiding. But how do we abide? Well, Jesus is glad you asked. (laughs) Step two, obey. Obey. Jesus says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. We abide in Jesus and his words abide or remain in us when we keep his commandments. That is, when we show by our actions that God lives in us. That Jesus' words are in us. And he reminds us, as we said at the beginning, of the end goal. I've said these things to you so that my joy may be in you. In you. And that your joy may be complete. We abide by obeying his commandments. And what is that commandment? This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. No one has greater love than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. I thought about naming this second response love, uh, because that's what we're told to do. And that wouldn't be wrong, and that wouldn't be new to most of us. We know, after all, the call to love God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love our neighbors as ourselves, and to love our enemies Right? We know that. But we can forget that it is a command. A commandment. This is an imperative. It is an order, not an option. And so it is obedience that we are to respond with. At the end of Matthew's gospel, Jesus told his disciples to make disciples. He said, baptizing them and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. For too many Christians, we say we follow Jesus with our words and fail to show we follow Jesus with our obedience. We fail in our obedience. Now, I grew up in the church, and so the word obey is largely for me understood in the context of obedience to Jesus and therefore as a good thing. But I know that the word, it may also bring to mind images of George Orwell's 1984, a dystopian future where the government controls everything and independent thought is discouraged and the word obey is used as a tool of control. The word obey has been used and abused, and, uh, to abuse and oppress spiritually and emotionally in relationships, in marriages, in churches, in communities, in families. You must obey, you must submit, usually to the person who's saying it. Immeasurable damage and countless scars have been caused by the stifling of questions by those in positions of power and authority. In our day and age, we often carry what can seem like an innate suspicion of authority, of institutions, basically of anyone telling us what to do, and not without good cause, because we've seen the damage that can be and has been done by those in authority who ended up abusing their authority. So it makes sense. It makes sense that when we hear, when I hear that word obey, a cascade of other thoughts and emotions come along with it. But it does matter who's saying it. It matters that it's Jesus who's saying it. It matters that it is the author of life who's saying it. It matters that it is the one who lived the fullest life any human being has ever lived who's saying it that it's the one who embodied a humility and an integrity and a sacrificial love more than anyone ever has who's saying it. Jesus is not a do-what-I-say-not-what-I-do type of leader. He's telling us the way to life. And it is through obedience to his commandments and specifically to his command to love one another. If you want to know joy, if you want your joy to be complete, If you want to live the fullest life anyone has ever lived, love as Jesus did. If you want to live the best life anyone has ever lived, love as Jesus did. If you want to live the most joyful, most rewarding life anyone has ever lived, love as Jesus did. He's already done it. He knows what he's talking about. He is, after all, God, who is love. And so when he says do this, you can be sure that it's the loving thing to do. Love is the mark and measure of a follower of Jesus, just as it was the mark and measure of the Master. The purpose of greater obedience is always greater love. It's always greater love. He says, I am giving you these commands so that you may love one another. Love one another as Christ has loved us, unconditionally, fervently, persistently, patiently, kindly, faithfully. It's a command to be obeyed, not an option to be considered. Now, I'm sure we all know that it's possible to do what someone says just to do it, isn't it? When your boss or your prof or your significant other or even a friend asks you to do something, you could technically do those things just to get by. Of course, none of us has ever done that. And so you may think, well, shouldn't I wait until I'm feeling loving before I do the loving thing? In our age of authenticity and being so-called true to yourself, you know, wouldn't it be inauthentic to do something that appears loving when I'm not feeling loving? Maybe. Or maybe the worst thing you've done is act in a loving Christ-like manner regardless of how you feel. I reckon it's probably going to be a while before you feel loving towards your enemies, but Jesus tells us to love them regardless of how we feel. And so to use a well-known tagline, just do it. (laughs) And if we do what Jesus commands, if we love one another, he tells us that we are his friends. He says, you are my friends if you do what I command you. I do not call you servants any longer because the servant does not know what the master is doing, but I have called you friends because I have made known to you everything that I have heard from my Father. The word for servant in Greek is doulos, which is also translated sometimes as slave. Now slavery in the New Testament uh, was not the same as slavery as it was practiced here in the United States, but the difference between the obedience of a slave and the obedience of a friend is the difference between immature religiosity and mature faith. Let me say that again. The difference between the obedience of a slave and the obedience of a friend is the difference between an immature religiosity and a mature faith. What I mean by that is there is a way of doing things because we're told to do them, which I've just mentioned. And as long as it's loving, I would say that's not a bad place to start. But there's a way of doing things because we've bought in and we're committed to the same thing the same goal, the same mission. And so we're listening to what our team lead or our project lead or our boss tells us because we hope they see and know and understand more of the picture. While well, Jesus knows the whole picture so we can trust his insight. We can trust his direction. We can trust his commands. And specifically, we can trust that when he commands us to love, it is the best way forward. A little while ago, I heard a prayer that has stuck with me and perhaps may be of use to those of us who are trying to love in obedience to Christ. It goes like this. God, give me the grace to find the space between impulse and action. Give me the grace to find the space between impulse and action. As one who is learning to live as Jesus would if he were in my place, I have to recognize that my impulse is not always loving. My immediate reaction is not always caring. In fact, it is usually selfish or self-serving. And so I'm learning to ask for the grace to find the space between impulse and action. And in that space, to ask what the loving thing would be. To obey. Finally, we persist. New Testament scholar Mary Ann Thompson writes that the word for abide in Greek, menane, implies two things. First, it, ab- it, it, it connotes uh, receptivity, openness, and responsiveness. It's being aware of Jesus and his words and responding accordingly. To obey in loving others is how we abide in Christ, as we've just seen. But it also implies perseverance, steadfastness, and faithfulness. It is a long obedience, and so we must persist. In John 15, verses 18 to 25, Jesus talks about the world's hatred of his disciples. And as William Barclay writes, by the world, John meant human society organizing itself without God. In our country, I might add, or with a false semblance of God, one that does not look at all like Jesus. Jesus says, if the world hates you, be aware that it hated me before it hated you. If you belonged to the world, the world would love you as its own. Because you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. He talks about persecution and suffering. And John's readers in the early church would have known exactly what he was talking about. Imprisonment and death were no strangers to them. Now I want to say this. Not all opposition or disagreement or conflict that you experience is persecution or an attack on the will and word of God. As Christians, we can be far too quick, usually unconsciously, to equate ourselves with the kingdom of God. So if someone disagrees with us or pushes back on us, it can be real easy to say, well, Jesus did say that the world would hate us. (laughs) But here's the thing. Sometimes it's God doing some pruning. Sometimes God is trying to teach or tell us something. Sometimes you're actually wrong, or just being a jerk. Those are also possibilities. Of course, you may actually be being persecuted, but that's not the only answer you should turn to in times of distress or discomfort. Let's try to be a little more discerning than that. Christians all over the world experience actual persecution. In Syria, Egypt, Nigeria, Pakistan, Sudan, the Philippines and India, there are stories of churches being bombed, Christians being imprisoned and even put to death. In China, the ruling Communist Party is becoming more interventionist, shutting down more and more churches and locking up congregants. One pastor was charged with inciting subversion, a crime that bears the penalty of 15 years in prison because his faith was leading him to advocate for human rights. After all, everyone is made in the image of God. Hundreds of house churches have been shut down. Crosses have been removed from buildings. Churches are being forced to put up the national flag and to sing patriotic songs. The goal has not been to stamp out Christianity, but to regulate it. To make it fit into its defined boxes and boundaries. To de-Jesus it. Now there will be persecution just because of the name of Jesus. Sectarian violence inflicted by one group upon another simply because it is different. There will be persecution because of our allegiance to Jesus too. In the days of the early church, the mandated greeting in the Roman Empire was, Caesar is Lord. To refuse to say that and to say instead, Jesus is Lord, was a political stance, not just a religious one. There will be opposition because we refuse to pledge allegiance to anyone other than Jesus Christ as our Lord. Because our followership of Jesus means we can do nothing but care for the poor and the vulnerable and to challenge systems and structures of injustice and abuse. But what I want to point out is that this passage about persecution and opposition, it follows right after Jesus has talked about love. After Jesus has said that we are to love one another. Oh, what a witness it would be to the world if we were persecuted for how much we loved people. For how much we welcomed people. For how much we included people. Or how much we were embodiments of the outrageous, expansive, indefatigable love of God. Jesus calls us to persist in our love for one another in the face of opposition because it can be easier to hate, to fall back on old lines of division, to rely on old tropes and stereotypes rather than seeing the other as a human being, one to be listened to and learned from. And it is a choice. We see it in the civil rights movement where Dr. King said, I have decided to stick with love. Hate is too great a burden to bear, but hate can be easier if we choose not to put it to death. If we choose to stay in it rather than to allow ourselves to be cleansed and to be changed and to go through that process. But if we persist in our love, if we persist in our love, then we are keeping Jesus' commandments. And if we are keeping Jesus' commandment, then we are abiding in Him. And His words are living and active in us, our lives and in our actions. And if we are abiding in Him, then we will bear fruit. And that fruit will be shalom. It will be peace and wholeness and right relationships between us, not just within us. And that fruit will be joy, pervasive and constant sense of well-being. That is infused with hope because of the goodness of God. And that fruit will be life everlasting. That is life on the other side of death. The life that can only come through death. Whether that death is pruning and cleansing, cutting away the things that are keeping us from health. Or whether that death is opposition and persecution. For our joy to be complete, we must abide in Jesus and obey his commands and persist in our love. We must go through the death of independence and discover the life of interdependence. We must go through the death of self-rule and discover the life of obedience to the master of living. We must go through the death of ease and discover the life of a persistent love. And all of it is contingent on our connection to Jesus. All of it is contingent on we, the branches, remaining in, staying joined to Jesus, the vine. We cannot persist in our love without the Spirit of God in us. We cannot obey His commands truly and wholeheartedly without the Spirit of God in us, transforming every part of us. And we cannot abide in Jesus without Him also abiding in us. There is a mutuality. But it is not an equal mutuality. Christ has borne the load. Christ has made the sacrifice. Christ has made the way. That's what we celebrate every week with communion, as we will in just a moment. Jesus paid it all so that we could find life on the other side of death. Jesus paid it all so that we might not fear death, but know and see that God is at work bringing good out of all things. That's what we receive. A work already accomplished so that we can join joyfully in the dance of the Spirit. But before we take communion, I want us to take a few moments to stop and to experience the grace to find the space between impulse and action, to consider what it is that God may be saying to us today. What pruning has God been doing in your life? What pruning does God need to do in your life? In what ways have you broken your connection to the life-giving vine? Or what has disconnected you? Where is Jesus saying, abide in me, rest in me, remain in me? Maybe there's an obedience that is being asked of you, a difficult obedience that requires loving when you don't want to, or loving sacrificially when you'd prefer to love conveniently. Or maybe the call is to persistence. A long, faithful obedience in love when you are tired and worn out. When you just want out. Maybe God is reminding you that persistence in love and in doing good requires persistence in abiding. Persistence in loving and doing good requires persistence in abiding. In whatever areas of your life you need to reconnect with Jesus... Or maybe you're thinking about connecting to Jesus for the first time. Maybe maybe you've never considered yourself a follower of Jesus. And to be honest, this death stuff seems difficult, but also right and good. And you long for the life on the other side of death, or for the joy instead of despair or distraction. I just want us to take a couple moments to listen to the Spirit. Where is Jesus saying, abide in me? What obedience is being asked of you? What persistence is being asked of you? What areas of your life do you need to reconnect with the source of life? Lord Jesus you are the true vine. You are the master of living, you are the author of life. And we can only live well if we are connected with you. But God it can be real it can be so much easier to uh to, do the, to, to, to walk the path of least resistance, even though somehow we know that it doesn't give us the life that we need. Because honestly, God, it can be hard to, to choose to love. It can be hard to, to choose to put others first. It can be hard to, to sacrifice and so we can choose a lower level of existence. So, God, for whoever is in that place who needs courage, fortitude, and the strengthening of your spirit to take a step toward you, God, as, as that, as. as Anybody who's in that place turns their face towards you, would your spirit just lift them up and catch them up and, and carry them along? So that they would know that it is not by their own power, but by yours. God, for anyone who's in a season of pruning right now, I pray for your comfort, your reassurance, your presence. I pray, that, I pray that that season is done soon, but I pray that that season would be completed in your time. That they would know and see and begin to understand the ways that you are at work. And for the times where they don't understand, Lord, I pray for your presence with them. Walk alongside them. God, we thank you. Thank you, Jesus, that you came and that you gave us an example to follow. You didn't just tell us stuff to do. But you did it first. You gave your life for us. You loved us. You sacrificed for us. And that's what we celebrate, that's what we commemorate when we come to your table and we receive the bread that was already broken for us and the blood that was already shed for us so that we might find life after death and life on this side of death and the life that comes from going through death. So God, we give ourselves to you. We ask for your joy to be in us and that our joy would be complete. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. The Spirit of Jesus Christ is not too far off for you. Wherever you find yourself right now, whatever feelings of, well, you don't know what's happened this week. You don't know what I've done this week. You haven't seen me. I was right there saying come back I'm right here you've not gone too far from me to turn around and I'll I'll be right there you have not become too disconnected from Jesus for him to make that strong again Holy Spirit, I pray that You that you would sweep through our lives yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. with power, and with life, and with joy, and with peace, and with hope. God, that You would sweep into our lives. You would shake up every dusty, dirty, dank corner of our lives. You shine your light on it. You bring your life to it. That we would abide. That we would remain. That we would live in you as you live in us. God, I pray that for every single person here this this morning, that that that's what this week would look like. And, And that we wouldn't do it in our own strength. We wouldn't just grit our teeth and commit to trying harder. We would try to be more aware that you're right there with us, that you're doing the work, that there are people around us who love us and care about us and are walking with us and who want to hear us and who want to hear our troubles and hear our burdens and share our hopes. So would you go with us, our source of life? We pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen.